0: Hello, this is Pastor Trevor. I am going to try to re-record uh, my teaching on baptism. I know the sermon. We had issues with um, issues with it posting to the website, and actually, the actual file itself being recorded. We were in between moves um, between um, our old building and our current location. So, uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go over pretty much my notes. Um, Just kind of cover the topic of baptism. uh, And it probably won't be as long or even as full as the sermon. At least I don't think it will be. Uh, But hopefully it will be enough to uh, be edifying um, and give you an idea of uh, what Scripture teaches in regards to baptism. Spurgeon wrote that nothing is more plainly taught in the New Testament than that it is the duty of every believer in Christ to be baptized. And I'm hoping that as we go through this, if you don't already understand that, that you will by the end of this um, podcast. I want to answer four questions though real quick to help us get started uh, that uh, one of our members uh, asked earlier in the week. And I'm going to use these four to kind of uh, frame our discussion, um, but I'm going to answer them briefly now and then hopefully expound on them throughout the sermon. And the first question is, is baptism necessary for salvation? Absolutely not. Uh, Spurgeon again writes, A man who knows that he is saved by believing in Christ does not, when he is baptized, lift his baptism into a saving ordinance. In fact, he is the very best protester against that mistake because he holds that he has no right to be baptized until he is saved. Second question, does requiring baptism for something, like membership, for example, start us down the slippery slope to legalism? Requiring baptism does not lead us down the slope of legalism any more than observing communion or seeking to obey any other teachings of Jesus. Now, how does freedom in Christ play into this question? First, we must ask, what does it mean to be in Christ? And then ask, what does the freedom mean? And what does that look like? In order for us to be in Christ, we must be united with Christ. And we'll talk about that more in the second main point uh, later on uh, when I talk about Romans 6. And finally, the fourth question, how is it different from the Old Testament Jews? That is, how is uh, baptism different from the Old Testament Jewish requirements of circumcision. Well, I think it's different in every other way, other than that it acts as a sign of a spiritual reality. One was commanded to Abraham and his descendants, the other was commanded by Jesus to anyone who would be his disciples. Now let me first apologize to anyone who has uh, never been taught about baptism but has been part of the church for quite some time. See, baptism is a core tenet of our faith. Without baptism, there is no Christianity. There are many teachings of scripture, but baptism is a teaching that cannot be ignored when sharing the gospel. And no teaching should be ignored, but baptism, it's a mark of who we are. It's a distinctive of our faith that has been that way since the first century. And even today, it is baptism that makes a Christian in the eyes of an unbelieving world. It is baptism that will often get a professing Christian killed, not just professing the faith, but the actual act of baptism. So there is much to be said about baptism, and I will only say, I hope anyway, what is essential. Therefore, if there are any unanswered questions uh, that you might have after listening to this, uh, please go ahead and email me, contact me, um, and we can talk about this more. I also uh, did post a blog following the sermon on this topic, Uh, that you can look at on our website on hopewestsalem.org. Today's message will have us scattered through the pages of God's words. And as we see, um, we're going to see baptism, how it was viewed in the Old Testament, at least its roots, where it came from in regards to the Old Testament, and where it is now in the New Testament. We're going to look at the why, the how, the what of baptism, and we'll wrap up with a brief Discussion on infant baptism versus believer's baptism. So, in the Old Testament, when we look at the Old Testament, we try to find the origins of baptism. We have to look at the ritual washings of the Old Testament. The ritual washings were a cleansing, a purifying of oneself before entering the presence of the Lord. Uh, we see this in Exodus nineteen ten uh, through eleven, where it says. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Exodus 40, verses 12-15, to Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him, that he may minister as a priest to me numbers 8 verse 5 through 7 again the lord spoke to moses saying take the levites from among the sons of israel and cleanse them thus you shall do to them for their cleansing sprinkle purifying water on them and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they will be clean leviticus 17:15 goes on talks about more and there are many other verses in the old testament that talks about this need to cleanse oneself with water in order to be in the presence of God or his community. And this connects us in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 22, verse 14, where it says that those who are washed are able to enter into the Lord's presence. In Revelation 7, 14, the robes are actually washed white by the blood of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ. Now, the washing here signifies two things. One, God's holiness and our uncleanliness, a.k.a. our sinfulness. Just as Moses was commanded to take his sandals off at the burning bush, our God is holy. And in order to enter into his presence, we must be made clean. So, cleansing, purification is necessary. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God was found in the temple in the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting but now in the new testament his presence is found in his church more specifically in us believers those of which the holy spirit dwells within And so in the old testament you had to be cleansed every time you desired to be in the lord's presence you had to offer sacrifices repeatedly to be forgiven for your sins well now in the new testament with the new covenant we are baptized once And for all, we offer one sacrifice that was made on our behalf, and that's Jesus Christ. And by doing so, we ourselves are washed clean of our sins before God by the blood of the Lamb. So, let's talk now about the ins and the outs of baptism. Well, first, why baptism? Kind of talked about that already with the connection with the Old Testament um, ritual washings. But I have four reasons as to why I think we um, need to be baptized as believers uh, in the New Testament with the New Covenant. Uh, But we only need one of these reasons to help us understand why. The other three help us understand ultimately uh, the the depth of it and and the meaning behind it. But ultimately, we, we only need this first reason as a reason to be baptized as believers uh, in the New Testament era and in with the New Covenant. And that reason is, ultimately, it's commanded. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, the Great com- Commission, Matthew writes, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is how we make disciples. We don't make disciples by having people repeat, repeat um, after me as we pray, that's not commanded. That's not how we do it. If you want to know how to make disciples, if you want to know how discipleship is supposed to be done within the Church of Christ. You don't need a 12-step program. Jesus tells us explicitly how to do it. You don't even need a discipleship one-on-one class. He tells us right here in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. See, make disciples here. This is the imperative. This is the command in the Greek. This is the main verb. The other verbs, go, baptize, and teach. They're they're part of participles. And they modify the command, make disciples. They tell us what it looks like to make disciples. Therefore, part of this making disciples is baptizing. You cannot make disciples if you are not baptizing. Plain and simple. So we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Along with that, we teach the disciples to obey all of his commands, to observe his commands. Part of that is to be baptized. So if you're not baptizing, not teaching them all to observe, you're not making disciples. And all these commands that he's talking about are the ones that are found in his word, not ones found through private revelations. Now, part of making disciples is a life of obedience. And this is, uh, as uh, Spurgeon says, uh, someone says, I can be saved without being baptized. So you will do nothing that Christ commands. If you can be saved without doing it, you are hardly worth saving at all. A man whose one idea of religion is that he will do what is essential to his own salvation only cares to save his own skin. Clearly, you are no servant of Christ's. Baptism, if not essential to your salvation, is essential to to your obedience to Christ. And Then in Acts 2.38, Peter, when he's asked, what must we do to be saved? He tells him, repent and be baptized, each of you. When you are saved... You repent of your sins, then you prove it by being obedient to the command of Christ, by identifying yourself as a Christ follower publicly, by submitting to his way of life and denying your way of life. See, again, baptism does not save us, but it is a sign, it is a reflection, an outward expression of an inner reality. And that leads us to our second reason, that baptism is a sign. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism signifies the reality of the union we have with Christ. See, often Baptism is is seen in this way, when one goes into the water, as they go under, it signifies the death to self and, and being united with Christ into his death. And then when we come out of the water, that represents our union with him and his resurrection and the newness of life that follows. This is why we celebrate baptism, because we are witnessing a physical expression of a person who has been born again into eternal life. In the early church, water baptism was closely linked with baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when I speak of baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking of our hearts and our souls being regenerated. That ultimately is our salvation experience. It's not a separate thing. You're not saved and the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes later. For us, it happens at the same time. When you read the early Church Fathers, you will see baptism sprinkled throughout their letters. So much so, you could say their theology of salvation was immersed in the idea that being baptized and being saved could not be separated. To speak of water baptism as necessary for salvation made sense because of what it represented. It represented our union with Christ. So to be aware of baptism... And not to do it is to deny the union with Christ, the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8. He desired to be baptized at once. Once, he, once the gospel was made known to him and he was aware of it, he, and he saw some water, he's like, what's, what's stopping us? Let me be baptized. This is the proper response to the gospel. So, since baptism is a sign, it's a moment we can look back on, right? And this is an edifying thing, because it's something that we can engage in. It's an experience that we can have. It's a tangible thing for us to use, to remind us of who we are, sons of God, born again and justified by the grace of God, not by anything we have done. You don't earn your baptism a blessing of grace to you and as such we can look back to that moment despite in our lives we might wander off the path and we might do things we don't want to do but we will always have that moment of baptism early in our faith where we can look back and remind ourselves i'm justified that god loves me just as much as he god loves me just as much now as he did then And that will not change. There's nothing I can do to lose that love. So by engaging in that, just like we do with any of the sacraments, it's an an act of worship. It's a tangible act of worship. It's one of the few tangible things that we have in our faith that we can look back to and be reminded of in regards to who we are before God. And as such, baptism is not to be repeated. If you go to the Jordan River in, in Israel... Don't get baptized again if you've already been baptized. Go in the water, fine, if you want to. But baptism is a sacred thing. And don't belittle it. Don't don't make it less than what it is by trying to repeat it or thinking that it's something that can be repeated. This is the role of communion. See, communion is a symbolic acting out of our fellowship, our communion with Jesus, which we do after we confess our sins to him having been baptized in his name, then you can enter into this fellowship with him. There's no need to be rebaptized, unless you believe in the heresy that one is able to lose their faith. Now again, here I hope when we practice communion, um, it's, it's an open table, um, open communion. We allow anyone who professes to be a believer to partake. We don't have a policy in place that people have to prove that they are that they have been baptized, nor do we even put that requirement out there. However, I would challenge anyone, any believer who is not baptized, why are you partaking communion if you have not been baptized? Because you are walking in willful disobedience. At the very least, after this message, you will be. So, get baptized. Put yourself in um, right standing with God and be obedient to His, commands. A third reason why we do baptism. It's the entrance to the church. We must be cleansed to be in his presence to be part of his body. Just like they did in the Old Testament, we new believers have to be cleansed to be in his presence to be part of his body. And baptism is a physical representation of the washing of sins associated with the forgiveness of sins a person receives when they are saved, when they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's not the water that cleanses us, cleanses us of our sins. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the blood of Christ that does that. But our baptism is a physical representation of that. It's a public profession of that. That we trust in the blood that was shed by the Son of God as an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. So just as being a committed member of a local church is an outward expression of being a member of the universal church, baptism is an outward expression of the moment one has been baptized into the faith by the Holy Spirit. Again, baptism does not save, nor does it contain any extra grace. It is a symbol that represents the reality of justification after it happens through an act of faith. Now, in church history, after the first century, uh, some laters, the church later would see baptism as a symbol of this reality um, being anticipated. This event of justification was anticipated into, as to happen, uh, and this is where infant baptism uh, started to be practiced. Um, we also, but those who believe in infant baptism sometime will refer to passages like Acts 10, Acts 16, 1 Corinthians 1 that mentioned households being baptized, which um, may or may not include infants, hence the argument for infant baptism. But at the same time, all these times, like Acts 10, when the household is baptized, the household also spoke in tongues. I don't think the infants were speaking in tongues. They couldn't speak at all. And speaking in tongues in Acts clearly is not some angelic language, but a foreign language in which there was somebody there that could understand that language, and what they heard was the proclamation of the gospel, the good news. And I think when we look at Scripture as a whole, Scripture teaches faith must precede baptism. Now, we'll talk more about infant versus believer's baptism in any moment, as there is more to be said. Fourth reason why we get baptized is it's a public testimony. Since it represents our union with Christ through faith, When we are baptized, we make a profession, a testimony before the church. The church acts as a witness. A a covenant of sort is being made by the baptized and the church. We profess what we believe. We agree to the triune nature of God. We agree uh, to um, Jesus Christ being the propitiation for our sins, uh, being the sacrifice for our sins, and, and our willingness to commit ourselves to a life of obedience, to submitting to God's word and to his Holy Spirit. And as such, this opens up all the benefits of membership. This inc- starts us on the track for a discipleship, um, if it, in which baptism is a part of. It opens us up to accountability, because now we have a body of believers that know what we profess to believe and will hold us accountable to this. They will pray for us. They will support us. This allows us to partake in communion, fully knowing that we are being obedient to all of God's commands. Now, some people um, will undergo a catechism. I'm just trying to save my notes here. So, one second here. Right, and yeah. So, in order for in order for people to make this a public testimony before um, the body of Christ in the early church, what was practiced was. If you wanted to be baptized, you had to undergo a catechism, sometimes months to years long, uh, just so that they would know what they were believing. They would understand the faith that they were being brought into. Uh, that way, the testimony that you're making that is public, you know what you're saying, and you're just not checking out the box. You, you, you know it. You understand it. You, you get it. Today, people who want to be baptized in our church, I meet with them, I sit with them, I go over the questions, I have them write testimony, they read the testimony before uh, the church, after baptism, and then I ask the questions that are real clear and explicit on the faith, and they affirm those questions. If they can't affirm any of those questions, uh, they cannot be baptized. Um, So, baptism is is very important in helping us establish um, our membership in the church um, establishing who are believers and what they believe. When we look back at the history of the church, since the birth of the church at Pentecost, which we read about in Acts 2, a believer is somebody who professed their faith in Christ publicly through baptism and was an active member of the local church. You did not have a believer if either one of those was missing. It did not exist. You, If you were a believer in the New Testament, you were baptized and you were part of a local church. Why should it be any different today? For whatever reason, we have in the modern church in past maybe 100 years, I don't, I don't know, past 20 years maybe even, we have allowed people to be believers but not be baptized. And when you look at scripture, that's not what's taught at all. And the church has never practiced that until recently. And I, don't, I think it's only really practiced here in America. Even the persecuted church where people, are, they seek to be baptized even though it risks their life. Now, let's talk about infant versus believer's baptism, um, which is also known as paedo-baptism, which is infant baptism, versus credo-baptism, which is believer's baptism. Now, why infant baptism? And, and Kevin Young was um, a big help in this, not personally, but just reading some of his material. Um, he's a Presbyterian uh, pastor, really bright theologian. I love reading his stuff. Uh, so I disagree with him on this. And that's also another reason why I'm using his explanation of infant baptism. Uh, but this also goes to show that within the body of Christ, um, there are people who believe in infant baptism. Who could grab onto it? A Luther, a Martin Luther and John Calvin also had, they were fine with infant baptism. Um, but again, I, I think it disagrees with scripture, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So, Kevin Young, he talks about it being a sign of the new covenant, right? Because you have the Abrahamic covenant, which was made in Genesis 15, which is sealed with circumcision in Genesis 17. And he connects it as a circumcision, as a physical sign that contained a spiritual meaning. And you can read about this in Leviticus 26, verse 40 through 42, Deuteronomy 10:16, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4:4, 4, 4, Jeremiah 6:10, Jeremiah 9:25. And then in Romans 2:25 through 29, Paul talks about how it's not circumcision that makes a Jew, but how the person acts inwardly, and if their heart has been circumcised, that makes them a Jew. Listen, he says, "For circumcision indeed, is of value if you obey the law." and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Again, that's Paul writing in Romans 2.25-29. Uh, that ultimately sums up the Old Testament verses uh, that Kevin DeYoung cites for connecting circumcision in the spiritual reality that exists in a person. Also, oh, Paul goes on and says, It's the faith of Abraham that was credited to him as righteousness not the act of circumcision. But circumcision was the seal of that righteousness being credited, in Romans 4.11. So since sons were part of the Abrahamic covenant in Old Testament via circumcision, by viewing baptism as the New Testament sign of being part of the new covenant, children, specifically infants, should not be excluded from it. This is the position of Kevin D. Young and other paedobaptists. Our denomination, the EFCA, it does allow for infant baptism. Though we, here I hope, we do not practice infant baptism, nor could I ever in good conscience baptize an infant. I still respect those who have been baptized as infants by parents of the faith if after wrestling with scripture, going to the Lord in prayer, their conscience is, is clear and clean and, and they accept that baptism to be their baptism. I will never force somebody to be re-baptized who was baptized as an infant so why believers baptism and again I, I i use john piper as well as somebody to help articulate this argument when you go to colossians 2 11, 12 paul writes in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made with our hands by parting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism here, right? It's meant to be a public profession of a person's faith, not somebody else's profession of faith. It's not supposed to be a profession of your parents' faith or the church's faith. The church cannot save you. In this passage, you are buried with Christ in baptism and you are raised with him Through faith, through your faith, through your personal own faith. Baptism in the New Testament is never separated from saving faith. It's not a means of it, but a reflection, a response, a sign of it. Infants are not capable of this. And ultimately, since baptism does not save a person, why not wait until we know for sure? And then you can allow that person who has made that profession of faith to be baptized on their own in front of the church. And they can remember that moment. Infants cannot look back on their baptism. They're not going to remember it. You're 18, 20, 35. You're not going to remember being baptized at just a few days old or a few weeks old. It is a special thing to be able, to, I think, to look back on your baptism and to cherish that. You should be able to. You should, you should ought to. That's, that's, that's a blessing to have and to be reminded of that moment. And in Galatians 3, 26, 27, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All who are in Christ, if you are to be in Christ, you have to put on Christ. To put on Christ, to be in Christ, you are to be baptized into Christ, which is done through faith, because you are sons of God through faith. And again, this baptism is reflected in our obedience. And it's also a reflection of the reality of being connected with Christ Christ. His death and resurrection. In North Korea, owning a Bible gets you fifteen years to life. Being formally baptized can get you the death penalty. So let us not only seek to be obedient to Christ in all things, especially through this command, which for us Americans is the easiest command to obey if we believe. And by doing so, we will honor our family in Christ especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, who die for the privilege of being baptized? What does it say to them when we claim to believe in Christ, but refuse baptism? Or we are lazy about it? But most importantly, what does it say to God? I hope this helps you understand the significance and the importance of baptism and why we should commit ourselves to this sacrament and obey it and to become baptized. And again, if you have any questions uh, on any of this, of what was talked about, what was shared, uh, please uh, reach out, uh, email me, uh, contact the church. I would be happy to explain more. You can check the blog um, on the website as well. uh, And we can talk about it more. I know baptism is... Um, A big topic, and I didn't get into the particulars of sprinkling versus immersion and and so forth. I think those are are details that um, you know. What I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just going to go ahead and add a little bit on that since since I brought it up. Ultimately, immersion is the preferred mode of baptism. That's what baptizo, the the Greek word is to immerse. Um, That's the preferred practice, and when you look at the early church, uh, it's it's always been immersion. The A talks about how you should Im- immerse a person um, at all possible. If you have the water to do so, preferably in flowing cold water. Um, if not, then you can do it in stagnant water. Um, and if you don't have deep enough water, then you can do the sprinkling. And it's recommended you sprinkle uh, three times. and One each for the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, again, I think... If we could do immersion, that's what you should do. But of course, obviously, there are reasons why uh, sometimes immersion is not possible. And I think sprinkling is acceptable. Um, I also recommend people who get baptized, uh, they should, if they feel led, uh, to fast beforehand. Um, How they fast, uh, length of time, that's up to them. I recommend 24 hours, just water. Um, And what that does is, the reason I recommend that is, one, that's what was practiced. Early church, the Didache recommended that as well, as well as the one who does the baptizing. But also, when we fast, when we do things like that for something like baptism, it gives that day, it gives that moment, that act, more weight. It makes the day heavier, so to speak, more significant, and it's not just another day. Uh, And when it comes to recalling that day, that moment, it's easier to do. Um, It gives it that more significance. So I uh, hope that clears up some maybe extra questions you might have. Again, thank you for listening. I hope this, um, I hope this was edifying, and thank you for bearing with me as I um, try not to re-preach but still use my notes um, on this topic, um, especially with it being a busy week with the move and all. Uh, may God bless you and keep you in all that you do, um, and may you continue to glorify him. Um, And may He continue to grow you um, in His truth and in His grace um, as we continue to walk with Christ together. God bless.